Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, my name is Father Daniel Marshall, a priest of Holy Virgin Protection Russian Orthodox Church in Goshen. It's a pleasure to be able to speak with you today and share with you in this program some of my path to orthodoxy. I've lived with my family in Goshen for about two years now, and prior to that had attended Holy Trinity Seminary in Jordanville, New York, and prior to that had been a parishioner of Holy Trinity Serbian Orthodox Church in St. Louis, Missouri. And so my path to orthodoxy really begins in my youth when I made a decision which at the time seemed insignificant but in God's providence has been ever so important. I attended a high school which required all students to study a foreign language. And among the choices were German and French, Spanish, the typical choices, but also German and Latin. And I have two older brothers, and of course, being the youngest one, I couldn't do what they had chosen to do, so that immediately eliminated Latin and German. And it left Spanish, French, and Russian. And so the French teacher I didn't particularly like. Spanish wasn't terribly interesting, and fortunately, the Russian teacher was a wonderful woman who encouraged all of us and intrigued all of us with the prospect of studying Russian. And so I started my studies of the Russian language in high school, I continued them in college, took several intensive summer courses, and then having graduated from college I thought it would be nice to go to Russia to get to speak Russian with the people whom I've been studying all these years. And so in 1988, at the height of Aglasnos and Perestroika, when Russia was becoming uh, the country, when the Soviet Union was becoming the country that it would, I went and lived in St. Petersburg, what was then known as Leningrad, for a semester. And during that time, I had the opportunity, of course, to study more Russian and get to learn the city and the customs of the people. But I also had the opportunity, thanks to the political changes in the Soviet Union, to be able to visit Orthodox churches and to meet with some young men who also were interested in their faith and practiced it. And in communist Soviet Union, to be a believer, as many of you know, was a dangerous thing. 
And even at that time, there was still oppression which would beset those who expressed their faith publicly. And so these two students had to secretly be Christians. They couldn't let it be known that they would go to church. Because in the Soviet Union, if you attended a university and went to church, then you would be expelled from the university. And so these young men were risking much in order to proclaim and practice their faith in Christ. Of course, I need to explain that I'm a convert to orthodoxy. And so I grew up Methodist. And for me, the experience of being in Russia and seeing the Russian churches and going to the services and hearing the singing and smelling the incense and joining in the worship as best I could at that point was a very different experience than something that I had known in my youth. And so as time went on, I visited different churches and became intrigued, but I don't think that there was, at least in the first couple of months of my stay, in the Soviet Union, a real impetus to become Orthodox. And so during my stay in St. Petersburg, I visited a number of churches, enjoyed the services and the singing, but it wasn't until our group took a trip to Kiev. We had toured a number of other major cities of the Soviet Union, Minsk and Novgorod and Moscow. But then we went down to Kiev, to the city where the Russians first chose to be Christian, the city of St. Vladimir. And there we took a tour of the Kiev Lavra. And this Lavra of the Caves, Kiev Pichersky Lavra, is an incredible arrangement of buildings and caves. When I went in 1988, the major cathedral was still largely in ruins. It had been bombed at, during World War II and blown up. But at the end of our tour, because this church was, of course, in the Soviet times, not a functioning church, but it was a museum of atheism, as they called it. But because of the openness of Glasnost and the political changes, and the fact that 1988 was the thousandth year anniversary of the baptism of Russia, they had allowed a handful of monks to resume living in the caves of the Kiev Cave Monastery. And so at the end of our official tour, our group went to the monastery and we were met by a monk who gave us a tour through a portion of the lower cave. 
And as an American who had grown up in the Methodist Church, there were many, many impressions on this tour which left a deep mark in me. For example, there was no electricity in the caves, and so each one of us was given a candle to carry as we walked through the caves. And I remember this fragrance of the beeswax candle. So I remember the fragrance of the beeswax candle. And we walked down into an area that clearly was hewn out of stone to these caves, a great, great network of passageways underground. And the ceilings were low and the lighting was dark. And I remember we went through a stone passageway for several hundred feet and then it opened up into a slightly larger room where in a corner there was a lampada hanging and some icons below it. And then to one side were some bars and a door, what looked like the kind of bars you'd find in a prison cell. But I'm sure it was a monastic cell, and there, hewn out of stone, was a flat area to serve as a bed covered with a simple blanket. And as our guide spoke, we walked a little further, and then we were in the Usipalnitsa, the charnel house of the Kiev caves. And there I saw row upon row of skull, many of them with the names written on them of the fathers who had lived and died at that monastery. And it was something I'd never seen before. It left a great impression on me. And so we continued our tour through these underground passages and came up. And then, as with any group, we had to get back on the bus and we continued a tour of Kiev later that day. And then we returned to our hotel and we had several hours, our guides had told us, several hours available to go around the city wherever we'd like to go. And the thought occurred to me, perhaps the fathers could use a little help. There were just a handful of them, eight or ten, and they'd only just been given back a portion of the monastery. And I had three or four hours available, so fortunately our hotel was near to the monastery, so I made my way back to the entrance. And when I arrived there, the whole monastery itself is surrounded by enormously tall walls, 18 or 20 feet. 
And when I arrived at the entrance, the doors which we had entered before were now closed. The official museum was no longer admitting visitors. And despite the fact that it was the middle of December and there were several feet of snow on the ground, I thought, well, maybe there's another entrance for the monastery. And I walked along the door, past the doorway along the great wall, and then turned toward the river Dnieper. The monastery is situated on high cliffs above the river. And as I walked in the snow, I saw a track of cross-country skis which seemed to guide me as I walked along the wall that was perpendicular to the river and then it turned forming the wall parallel to the river. And I walked down a series of stairs which remarkably the skier had skied down. And as I descended those 40 or 50 stairs then I got to the bottom of those and then the ski tracks made a sharp left turn and led to what I had hoped for, another entrance to the monastery. And as I entered, I realized that despite the fact that I had been studying Russian at that point for about 10 years, I wasn't quite sure the right way to address a priest. I knew what the word for a priest was, but I wasn't sure how you spoke to them. And after I entered the monastery, I was a little unsure of myself and thought, well, I'm not going to bother those men dressed in long black robes with beards. They look too busy. But there was a Babushka, an old grandmother there, shoveling snow. And you can't live in the Soviet Union or be in Russia for long without having to deal with babushki, with grandmothers. And so I walked up to her and I said, I'm here for a little while. Is there some way that I can help? And she looked at me almost with disdain, eyed me from my hat, my coat, my shoes, and said, no, your feet are poorly dressed. Your shoes will get wet and you'll get sick. No. And so I explained to her that, no, actually, I had very good boots that wouldn't cause my feet to get wet, it would all be okay. And she finally believed me and let me help her shovel. And so for half an hour, 45 minutes, I don't really know how long, I shoveled snow, piling it as she had instructed me to. And then as I had heard before in St. Petersburg, the bells rang. 
And the babushka came back to me and said, it's time to go to church. And I looked at her and I said, well, I'm not orthodox. And she looked back at me and as if it really wasn't her speaking, but God through her, she said, why not? And I had no good answer for why I was not orthodox. I don't think I really said anything in response to that, and the thought wandered through my head and my heart as I listened to her instruction that yes, it was in time, indeed time to go to the service. And so that question of why was I not orthodox wandered through my head and through my heart as I listened to her advice and went to the service. And now I know that this was a Vespers service. I don't think I had any idea at the time what service it was, but I remember a beautiful blue church, a priest sensing and wonderful singing. And when the service was done, I walked home continued my stay in the Soviet Union and came back to America and spent the rest of a better part of a year researching orthodoxy, talking with friends who were orthodox, trying to decide if I had an answer, why was I not orthodox? So after I returned home to America, to my family's home in St. Louis, Missouri, as a recent college graduate, I spent most of my time looking for a job and eventually found one as a teacher, teacher of English. But in between time, I spent a lot of time reading about orthodoxy, visiting various churches in the St. Louis area, and examining 
my own, at that point, Methodist traditions. And so there were several things that really struck me about orthodoxy. The Methodist Church, the services consist primarily of a sermon. When the minister stands up and faces the people, and as it seemed to me at the time, talks about what it means to be good. And when I looked at orthodoxy, what I saw was a service during which 90 or 95 percent of the time the priest faces the holy altar, faces God, and leads the parishioners in worship. And the order in the Orthodox Church seemed to me to be a much more appropriate way for us to spend our time in worship. Because our attendance in church is not about a man, about the priest, and what the priest has to say, or what kind of person he is. Our attendance in church needs to be about our relationship with God, and the priest merely serves to help us in our worship of God. And at that time in the Methodist Church, they had recently introduced what they called the New Hymnal. And in that New Hymnal, they had modified many of the prayers and removed some of the traditional Methodist hymns. Among them, Onward Christian Soldiers was no longer deemed appropriate to be sung at Christian worship. And the prayers were often modified to no longer proclaim the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but some sort of neutral gender equivalent, the Creator the Redeemer, the Sustainer. And as I read about the 2,000-year history of the Orthodox Church, and I read how the doctrine of the Church has always remained the same, and how the essential traditions of the faith are identical no matter where orthodoxy is worshipped, in Russia or Greece or Serbia or in the Holy Land. I began to ask myself, how is it possible that the Methodist Church contain the whole truth. 
And when I thought about the changes that had taken place, I allowed that in the wisdom of the people guiding the church that this was a good change, one for the better. But then I thought, well, what does that mean for those people who lived 50 or 100 or 200 years before that who were Methodist? Did they not attain salvation because they sang Onward Christian Soldiers or understood God as God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And soon it became clear to me that if we believe that God loves us, and he does love us, if we believe that God loves us, then we also have to believe that he loves all of us, all humanity throughout all time. And there is no way that he would have established his church through his apostles and their disciples. There is no way that Christ would have established the church and then not given it the fullness of the grace required to guide the members of the church, the members of Christ's mystical body to salvation. And so the more I thought about these changes in the Methodist Church and in other churches, it became clear to me that indeed there was and is one holy apostolic church and that that church is the orthodox church